Well, good morning. Merry Christmas to all of you. If you have a Bible, John's Gospel, the first chapter is where I would invite you to turn. Chapter 1 of John. We're going to read a few verses to set us on our way. Page 751 in the church Bibles. Probably be good if we close those doors there. Yep. Thank you. So just let me just speak to you just for a moment. Um, so this morning, of course, we have two services, this service and the children's program with a message in the second service. The message will be different in the second than the first. And so I had to prepare, prepare two, one mini one, which is actually harder than a long one, a terrifically long one like this one will be. No, <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> so in light of that, about three weeks ago, two weeks ago, I had the privilege to speak to the TNT and Sparky's. Um, a lesson about the divinity and humanity of Jesus Christ. And it was so helpful to me personally. What I determined to do was expand it, uh, make it more adult, if you would, which is always kind of weird to say, but anyway. Um, and that's what I did. And so um, I hope it's helpful to you. It was extremely helpful to me by way of preparation and just by way of just reminding myself of um, why Christ had to be human and why Christ is divine and what it means in light of our salvation. So let's uh, read a few verses from John's gospel and then we'll pray. Verse one, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, the word, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. In verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then verse 18, this is a wonderful verse. We're not going to really speak to, to it at all today, but it's just a very great verse in light of all the shenanigans that go on about people who have these visions of God. No one has ever seen God. <laughs> but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Okay, let's pray. Our gracious God, how we thank you for bringing us uh, together this morning in this place to hear from you, the living God, through the pages of your living word, the Bible. What a terrific privilege it is when we meet God, whatever the circumstances, as your people. And help us to know and believe, and especially as this year draws to a close and the new one comes to us, we, we pray, all spared we pray, that public worship in Christ's name in the company of your people is the highest of human activities and the highest of human privileges. And so we, we thank you for this amazing grace and we would ask that you'd have mercy on us. Forgive us of our sins, pride and envy and immorality and arrogance and apathy and listlessness and the and the things which matter most and please then take hold of this whole situation today both services and into the evening hour we pray this for the honor of your name you might see people converted convinced encouraged directed and if needed corrected and then please god please extend your christmas blessing to all who pass through our doors, both in this place and in our homes, for Jesus' sake. Amen. So says J.I. Packer in the opening chapter of his 
wonderful book, Concise Theology, the part about the divinity and the incarnation. Packer says Jesus was a man who convinced those closest to him that he was also God. We could reverse that and say Jesus was God, a, was the God who, uh, who convinced those closest to him that he was also a man. So as a man, the fact that Jesus existed, that he walked this earth in a certain time and place, that he said things that no one had ever said before, that he taught things that that no one uh, had ever said before, that he said things that made some love him and then some hate him, that he did deeds that baffled his contemporaries and he made people, so many people, praise his Father in heaven. That fact is recorded for us not only in our Bibles, but also recorded for us in other ancient books. We call them secondary sources. These sources point, among other things, to the time and place of his birth and record the words and deeds of Jesus' life. So, for example, in the Gospels and the Epistles, we find a, a, a weary, a hungry, a pliable Jesus, a Jesus that feels pain, a Jesus that changes his mind, a Jesus that suffers the equivalent of a panic attack as he agonizes in the Garden of Gethsemane. We find a Jesus who bleeds, a Jesus that experiences human pressures, temptations, and a Jesus who has to be taught because he was human. Listen to your Bibles, Bibles, Hebrews 5, 7. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears. He, he gave them to the one who can save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. So, son, though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. So it's not only in the Bible that points to the humanity, but as we, as we said, secondary sources. And if you gather together uh, Greco-Roman and Jewish sources and you combine them, you would be able to piece together a picture of Jesus and you could learn about the time and place of his public ministry. You'd learn about his, his mother's name, Mary. You'd learn about the unusual circumstances of his birth, his fame as a teacher and as a miracle worker. The, you would learn by secondary sources the fact that uh, both Roman and Jewish leadership conspired together and they were behind his death. You would also learn even about the perceived coincidence of an eclipse that happened at the time of Christ's crucifixion. Those facts are recorded for us, not by a Christian but actually by a pagan, a fellow named Thalos, A.D. 55. So Jesus was a man who convinced others closest to him that he was God. Now, as you think about this, and most people have no real issue with the humanity of Jesus, the, the fact that he existed. In fact, if you think a bit harder in our own context, sometimes evangelicals do their best to kind of ignore the aspect of, of his life, that Jesus was human, that the perfect one had to suffer. And the perfect one had many difficulties in his perfection. And they ignore it perhaps in order to promise us a superhuman life. With all the bad stuff just wiped away. So join their club. Consider their material. And off you go. But you don't find that in the Bible. And whether or not that's the truth behind why they do what they do. Most people have no difficulty with the humanity of Jesus Christ. However, many, many people have difficulty with with his divinity. In fact, many people have never surrendered to the fact that Jesus is God. 
The Apostle John opened up his gospel as we read, declaring that Jesus is is the, not a, but the eternal God in flesh. The the one and only Son, quoting John, who came from the Father full of grace grace and truth. In his letter to the Colossians, the Apostle Paul wrote, In Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Likewise, the book of Revelation describes Jesus as the Alpha and Omega, the one who was and is and, and is to come. Indeed, Jesus is, is no mere man. And the difficulty of Christ's divinity and the obviousness of his humanity has caused some to, to reinterpret the incarnation, to reinterpret the biblical witness that God became man and dwelled among us. Charles Wesley had it in a wonderful two lines our God contracted to a span, incomprehensibly made man. So as a brief aside, if you're thinking right now, thank you for all this, but why are we doing this? Well, this is why I think we should do this, because our only hope in life and death is not ourselves, right? But we belong body and soul, both in life and death, to God our Savior and to Jesus Christ, who paid for all our sins with his precious blood, who set us free from God's wrath, who, from sin's power, and destroyed the works of the devil by his appearing, 1 John 3, 8. And you see, if that is the case... And if you check your Bibles, you'll find that what I'm saying is true. And you should always check your Bibles, by the way. You should never trust what I'm saying. You should check your Bibles, go home, check your Bibles, recheck your Bibles. But anyway, if all that is true, then no kind of, you know, rinky-dinky, sentimental, fiddle-faddle, easily ignored, easily lost, easily challenged faith will do. No, no faith that we're constantly wondering if it's all true, if it's worth our time, are we, are we bound for heaven? That faith won't do. You see, we need theology. We need something to, to come in thick and weighty and profound, which will grab us square, shake our world of apathy or luxury or whatever it is, and will grab a square and tell me, do not ignore, Hebrews 2, 3, such a great salvation. That will tell me, do not be silent or apologetic about such a great salvation. That will teach me as often as I need it, and I needed it this week, that I can wake up every morning knowing that although a lifelong battle with sin is to be expected, I can wake up every morning, John Owen, love this line, knowing that I am not accepted by God by my personal performance, but by the infinite righteousness of Jesus Christ. I need a faith that will tell me that my deportment and my line of living, uh, which would deny such a great salvation has taken place, should not be real to me. Unless, of course, my great salvation has not taken place. Almighty God, loved ones, came down to save us. Almighty God has humbled himself, took on flesh, and died a death to every one of us because of our rebel sins. So, so I hope this talk makes us dig our roots deep. It, I hope it plunges us into what we must think through. So for example, a Jehovah's Witness might come to your door during this season. And they'll say to you, Jesus is merely an angelic being. That, true, that falsehood, excuse me, can be met with the truth that, no, Jesus is not an angelic being. Jesus is not a created being. 
Jesus steps into time of fully human and fully God. Or what about docetism that teaches that when Jesus was on the earth, he only seemed human, that he was more like a phantom. He was a spirit with flesh over him. So, so he really didn't die and there wasn't really any blood. It was more for show. You see, that's not what the incarnation is. Or how about this one, a monophysitism. The idea that Jesus only had one nature and that he pretended to be hungry and that he pretended to be weary and that he pretended to be ignorant of the facts. That is not what took place in the incarnation. Or here's another one that's actually quite popular now. Jesus had two natures, but they were, they were fluctuating like electrical circuits so that at times he acted as humanity and sometimes he only acted as divinity. That's wrong as well. Jesus endured everything as a human, as a God, everything in his earthly existence as fully God and fully man, full time, and yet was without sin. So I have this book. It's one of my favorite books. It's written by John Stott. It has a wonderful title, The Incomparable Christ. And what that title means is what the Bible declares, that Jesus is without equals, that there is no one like Jesus, and they will, there will never be anyone like Jesus, which is why Christianity is so irritating to other religions and to the pagan world. This is not a system. This is not a moral list. This is a person. This is a person who is our Savior. So just let me ask you some questions. They're kitty questions. I hope you know the answer. Do you know anyone who always says and does the right thing all the time, every time for the right reasons? Do you know anyone like that? Only Jesus. Do you know anyone who history records made dead people alive, who could calm storms and waves by just speaking to them? Do you know anyone like that? No, only Jesus. Do you know anyone who's never told a lie? Only Jesus. Do you know anyone who took the punishment for sins so that we could be forgiven forever by a holy God, so says the Bible. No, only Jesus. You see, there's no one like Jesus, and there will never be anyone like Jesus. So what we're going to do now with the time that we have left is just answer three straightforward questions based on the fact of the incarnation. Because what the Bible teaches is that human beings need a redeemer. They need a redeemer. They need then the incarnation. And by the way, when you're inviting your friends and neighbors to the Christmas uh, gatherings here, just invite them to read their Bible because if you read your Bible and if you read the first book and the first chapter of the first book of the New Testament, you will not get 21 verses into that first chapter of the first book of New Testament and discover that Jesus came in order that he would save his people from their sins. Right off the bat, Jesus came to save people from their sins. And so let's just ask these questions. Okay, so what kind of Savior, what kind of Redeemer is needed to bring us back to God? A Redeemer, a Savior, says the Bible, is someone who can free us from God's punishment on our sin and get us back to God. Do you know anyone like that? Because the Bible is prepared to say no one, not me, not you, not someone else better than us can be good enough to get us back to God. So we need help. We have to have a redeemer. So again, the question, what kind of redeemer is needed, savior is needed to bring us back to God? And the answer is straightforward. One who is truly human and also truly God. In other words, the the incarnation, God breaking into the world in flesh to save people. 
Isaiah 9, 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called what? Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And you see, part of the reason why Isaiah wrote this, these verses 800 years before the birth of Christ is because God's people, by way of God's preachers, needed to know that they could not do what they needed to do to put themselves in the right with God. So they couldn't be good enough. They couldn't silence their own conscience about these things or the conviction that would come in their daily disobedience. And because this is so important, I have to ask you, maybe that's you right now. You're trying like the Dickens to be good. You know you should, but you can't. And you understand God's penalty on your disobedience, and you know you can't pay it. So you need a redeemer, a savior, someone to take your place. But only a certain kind of redeemer will do. Fully God, fully man. And that takes us to our second question. Okay, then why must the redeemer, our savior, be truly human? Two-part answer. Part one, we need a savior, a redeemer, who in his human nature might, on our behalf, perfectly obey the whole moral law of God. That's part one. Part two, a savior, a redeemer, who is the perfect required sacrifice and thus suffers the punishment for human sin. So because God, this is God's eternal decree, this is what God demands, Jesus, God's son, the second person of the Trinity, volunteers himself, takes on flesh so that he might do what we are unwilling and unable to do, namely, part one of our answer, to keep God's law perfectly. Listen, not partially, Not momentarily, but perfectly. Just listen to your Bible. Galatians 4.4. When the time had fully come, God sent his son, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. Hebrews 4.15. A high priest, Christ, who was without sin. Hebrews 10.5. When Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you do not desire, but a body you prepared for me. Then I said, Here I am. It's written about me in your scroll. I've come to do your will, O God. So Jesus was born into the world as an actual person, a real person, which means this. Jesus grew to a certain height. His hair had a certain color, and his hair had a certain length. Jesus spoke a certain language. Jesus weighed so many pounds. Jesus had to learn his numbers and his colors and his letters. He ate and he slept and he dreamed. And as a human, he endured temptations from the evil one. Remember the temptation account? He endured the temptation of self-gratification. Oh, Jesus, you look so hungry. You, you could use a good meal. Turn those stones into your dinner. The temptation of self aggrandizement. Uh, Jesus, if you're really God's son, you know, flex your muscle. People need to see this. Do something spectacular, Jesus. Jump. Let's see what will happen. Or the temptation of self-centeredness. You know, Jesus, I have a plan B, says the evil one, that's just as good as God's plan A and involves no pain and involves no sacrifice, no blood, no death. What do you say, Jesus? And listen very, very carefully because some people don't understand this. Being human, Jesus could not conquer any temptation without a painful, real struggle. 
get that, a painful and real struggle. Jesus was not given any mulligans because he was divinity. He couldn't turn it on and turn it off. He was there, fully human, fully God. But for his father's sake and our need, he conquers that which I know I have and perhaps you may have fallen prey to way too often. So the eternal God who knows everything, who created the whole universe, became not only a man but a baby as that and suffers on the cross like no man has or ever will. And in Jesus, our Redeemer, then we have in one man what we were made to be. That's the second part, right? Fully perfect, get that. But we need a perfect sacrifice to be what we should be so that his death would mean something. So what we have in Jesus is what we should be. What we were made to be. What God intended each of us to be. And you see, loved ones, we are so fallen. And we've been so fallen for so long that we actually think at times that we're the measure of what it means to be human. Or, and I think this might be far worse, we say or we think, if you put everything right before me that I need, then I will be just fine. I'll be what it means to be fully, truly human. But the Bible says, no, no, only Jesus is that. Only Jesus does this in his humanity, and that is nothing short of a miracle. Because in his humanity, Jesus offers God everything that we owe God, everything that we were meant to be. We owe God perfect obedience again, but we won't do it, and we can't do it. So we lie, we fight, we lust, we indulge, we've got to have our own way, we won't forgive, and on and on and on. But Jesus never did any of this. He was without sin. And not only then does Jesus offer to God everything that we owe God, namely perfect obedience. But here's the great part. The very punishment that should have been ours because of our disobedience, Jesus pays for as he suffers and bleeds and dies on the cross. Let this be your your theme line, if you would, for the coming year, if if, if we're spared and we get into it. In my place condemned Christ stood. Let that wake you up every morning. In my place, uh, condemned Christ stood. Oh, uh, and not, if I can just get it, everything right, then I'll be right. Because that is a lie. Answer this question, if you would, in your head. Who has felt the nails upon his hand, bearing all the guilt of sinful man? Uh, answer, God eternal, humble to the grave, Jesus, Savior, risen now to reign. I told the kids that night, that Wednesday night, I said, this is like you disobeying your parents and and the punishment that your parents decide to give you, your parents themselves take. If you still have little kids at home, try that once and watch them freak out. We did it. The very punishment that they deserve, you take. That's what Christ did. Again, to our Bibles, Hebrews 2.17, for the reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, was in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement. What is atonement? A Christ satisfying God's wrath on sins, that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. And again, I have to say this, we owe God perfect obedience. You know, don't be terrifically happy with yourself because of 50% obedience or 80% obedience or not even 99% obedience. 100% obedience is what 
is required. I was in a Christian bookstore about five weeks ago. And I was just looking through the names of, of the titles on the book. And it was like, does, do we not think that we're sinners anymore? Because it was rare that I saw a book title that would help us to that end. God says blood must be shed because we are not 100% perfect all the time. And Jesus on the cross steps in, in our place as a human, and dies our death. And that takes us to our final question. Okay, then why must this Redeemer be, be also truly God? And here's the answer. Because, because of his divine nature, his obedience and his suffering, it, it would be perfect and be effective. Isn't that wonderful? Perfect and effective. So God's word says we have to have a redeemer. He has to be truly human. He has to be truly God. He must be fully human because he has to be sinless and sacrificial so that he dies a real death and sheds real blood and takes on our punishment. And now we learn that our redeemer must be fully God. Now here's the big question. Why must our redeemer be truly, fully God? And here's the answer. All our sin, all our sin is ultimately committed against God. Write that down if you don't know that. All our sin is ultimately committed against God. So when we lie to each other, when we disobey our parents, we hurt or harm others, when we gossip or we slander others or refuse to forgive, ultimately we're lying and disobeying and hurting and harming God. God. When King David committed his horrible sin, he wrote in Psalm 51.4, he got this against you and you only have I sinned and what done what is evil in your sight so that you prove right when you judge. So settle this in your mind. All our sin, all our sin is ultimately committed against God. <laughs> and again, I'm thinking about a time, this probably two or three years ago, the lady on the radio, she's a nice lady. It was a Christian radio, and she was trying to do her best. And she was talking about sin, and she's saying like, oh, well, he didn't mean to do it. He was talking about her husband, and he doesn't usually do that. And here's how you can fix your marriage. And I'm like, lady, please. All our sin was not against you. All your husband's sin ultimately was not against you. It was against God. Only God can forgive sin then against himself. Only God can forgive sin then against himself, which is why some of the religious people of Jesus' day were so always upset with Jesus when he said that he forgives sins because they understood what Jesus was saying. And they would say, well, how can you, a mere man, forgive sin against God? A mere man can't, but God can. Jesus then being fully human is our substitute. Jesus being fully God was our righteousness. In order that his obedience, and here we are again, and his suffering would be perfect and effective. Perfect. He is sinless, effective. He is God. Perfect and effective in order that God's justice might be completely and eternally satisfied. You know, all our good deeds and all our personal sacrifices, that's fine. But don't go into that thinking that that somehow makes us more right with God. Don't do that. The Jews did that. They suffered awful for that in the first century. Jesus died as a man and Jesus died as God. And then, of course, Acts 2.24, but God raised him, Christ, from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold of him. Now, loved ones, we're about done. Here's the issue. Jesus is alive and he's soon coming. 
Jesus as a human takes our place. Jesus as divine satisfies God's anger on sin. Only Jesus is God's redeemer. Only Jesus can save you from the wrath to come. And so I have to ask you, have you trusted in Jesus? Well, you say that a lot. Well, it's so important. Have you trusted in Jesus? Have you placed your life in his hands? Have you repented? Jesus, you're right about my sin and believed on the only one who can save you. The Jesus of history, the Jesus of the scripture. In August of 1989, Depeche Mode, the music group, they released this song, Your Own Personal Jesus. And it had this line. Your own personal Jesus, someone to hear your prayers, someone who cares. Your own personal Jesus, someone to hear your prayers, someone who's there. Now, whatever the intent of their song is or was is unclear to all but God. But that sounds an awful like, lot like, to me, 20, a 21st century version of Christianity. Right? Your own personal Jesus, who you can wind up Make him do what you want him to do or need him to do. Make him be what you want him to be. And there you have him. But the biblical question is this. Is this, this divinity and humanity, this incarnated one, the Jesus of the Bible, is he ruling your life? Is he reigning over everything in your life? Or do you have your own personal Jesus? And Jesus you keep on the shelf. And you only take it out when you think he's needed. I don't know the answer to that question, but this is what I know. We need the Jesus of the Bible. We need the Jesus of the Bible who broke into time and to space and humbled himself to, to death for our sin. And you see, if we're Christian, then that will keep us humble and bearable to the dying world. But if we're snooty, and we think that this whole thing is about us and we have our own personal Jesus for our own personal needs, then this is what you need to know. This is Christmas, 1 John 3. You know that he, the Son of God, divinity and humanity, he appeared so that he might take away our sins. Because in him, not in us, but in him, no sin. And loved ones, that is our Christmas blessing. This sets our Christmas table. These are the strengths behind our Christmas giving and our Christmas receiving. He appeared. Jesus appeared. This is why it's so terrific to be a Christian. He appeared so that he might take away my sin, my pre-converted sin, <laughs> my sin as a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. This world can be such a weary place. <laughs> and one of the reasons why I think this world can be such a weary place is that either we carry our own sin as Christians with us and we forget the gospel graces or we have no place to take our sin because we're not Christian. And so that's our Christmas question. And it's not only for every one of us here, but it's for every one of us that we know that's not here. Think it through. Now, there's no way I'm going to end this sermon quoting from Depeche, Depeche Mode. I heard the voice of Jesus say, come unto me and rest. 
Lay down, you weary one. Lay down your head upon my breast. And I came to Jesus as I was. Like no games. Weary, worn, and sad. And I found in Jesus a resting place. And he has made me glad. Merry Christmas. Let's pray together. Well, Father, we would ask that you would open the hearts of those we know or those here who doubt the truth concerning Jesus Christ. And we would ask that you would open the understanding of those who doubt his divinity, his authority, and his saving power. And then we ask, God, that you would open their minds, our minds, so that we may understand the Scripture and its gospel, so we might believe and rejoice in our believing and be humble in our believing for Jesus' sake. Now may the love of God and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be ours for Jesus' sake. Amen.